0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 52 for the first half of October 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the mystery of Phobos 2. The claim we'll be looking into for this episode is that the Soviet spacecraft Mars Phobos 2 was blasted out of the sky in March of 1989, just after it had photographed either a UFO mothership or a missile headed towards it, launched from the planet. Now, I think it's important in this kind of discussion to first talk about the history of missions to Mars for context. In total, by my count, there have been 43 different missions to Mars by various countries around the world, there is one Chinese mission, one from the European Space Agency, one from Japan, 20 Russian or Soviet, and 20 American missions. Of all of these, 21 were mostly or completely successful, and most of those successful ones were from the United States. The Soviets and Russians haven't had a completely successful mission to Mars since 1973. On the other hand, They have had much more success with landing on Venus than the United States has had, but that's another episode. What's the point in going through this? The point is that space travel is hard, and it's hard to get everything working completely right, and it's hard for it to be a success. I mean, just think about the last time your computer or phone or an appliance had a technical malfunction with it. You were able to either go to the store and get a replacement, a replacement part, get it fixed in some other way, or buy something else. When you have a spacecraft en route to another planet, you really can't do that. And so you have to be really careful when building these craft, but mistakes do happen. And some countries have a better track record getting to certain planets than other countries. Now Phobos 1 and 2 were both named for Mars' larger and closer eponymous moon. They were almost twins, but because of weight restrictions, some instruments flew on one craft and not the other. The scientific investigations of both missions were to conduct studies of the space between planets, observe the sun, characterize the plasma environment near Mars, study Mars' surface and its atmosphere, but the primary mission was to study the surface of the moon, Phobos. They were launched on July 7th and 12th of 1988. Phobos-1 was operating normally for just under two months, and then on September 2nd of 1988, it had a communications failure. Mission operatives on Earth could not regain contact with the craft, and after an investigation, it was determined that the problem was with the software update that happened on August 29th and 30th. The software update had an error in it that ended up deactivating its pointing thrusters. One single letter in the updated code was sent wrong, and that caused the thrusters to shut down. With those disabled, it couldn't keep pointed towards the sun, and the solar arrays could not power the batteries. So, Phobos-1 was dead. Phobos-2 operated well for over nine months, gathering data en route to Mars, and also when it got there, and it entered orbit on January 29th of 1989. The final phase of the mission was for Phobos 2 to get within just 50 meters, or about 164 feet, of the moon Phobos, and then to release two landers. Now, during a maneuver that would bring it closer to the moon, the transmitter to send all communication back to Earth was shut down in order to conserve power, since it was already operating only on the backup power system. But it didn't send a signal back indicating that it had restarted, like it was supposed to. The control group on Earth tried to send emergency commands, and they did get about 17 minutes' worth of telemetry data. But the craft was tumbling, the telemetry was confusing, and the only communication was through the small antenna on the craft, again because the main one had failed. After those 17 minutes, they lost all contact on March 27th of 1989. Before it failed, it had returned several dozen images with a pixel scale of up to 40 meters, which is pretty good, especially for that time and technology. After a lengthy investigation, the Russians, or actually the Soviets at the time, were able to decipher the telemetry and find out that the failure was with the spacecraft's onboard computer, as opposed to it getting hit with something like a meteor. So the failure was determined to be due to a malfunction with the onboard systems. Something mundane that has been the cause of failure of half of the missions to Mars. Or at least, that's the official story that they want you to believe. Enter the conspiracy. Conspiracists usually tell a somewhat different story. They say that, rather than having already suffered some mechanical and computer failures, including a loss of its main transmitter in late 1988, Phobos-2 was a completely flawless mission, until it lost all contact with Earth on March 29th, or March 27th, depending on who you believe. They also say that it lost contact just before releasing the rovers on the Phobos, rather than several days before the release was going to happen, and the loss was actually during a maneuver to get it closer to the moon. But what they really focus on is the last reported infrared image returned from the craft itself. They tell a story, they being the conspiracists, of how the image was smuggled out of Moscow by the Russian cosmonaut Marina Popovich, who got it from another Soviet astronaut who was high up in the space program. She then showed this image at a UFO convention in 1991, two years after the failure of the craft, and she claimed that it was, quote, the first ever leaked accounts of an alien mothership in the solar system, end quote. I've actually seen a few different versions of the quote-unquote last image. So there apparently were a couple last images, but regardless, what they all show are a vertical white stripe at the bottom of the image, vertically, but at the center of the image when you look horizontally. And that stripe is aimed directly towards the moon Phobos, which is nearly saturated white in the images that I've seen, towards the top of the image. Various people claim that this is a spaceship that is at least 15 miles long. Or, some people claim that it's a blast from a plasma beam weapon that destroyed the Phobos-2 spacecraft. Or that it was a scanner that, due to the Phobos-2 spacecraft's primitive technology, it simply overloaded the electronics before returning to the planet. These are, of course, extraordinary claims, and some are, on their face, factually wrong. But what about this last image? All of the ones that I could find that actually had a date attached say that the image was taken on March 25th of 1989. That's interesting because, if you remember, that was two days before contact was actually lost, on March 27th of 1989. And as far as I can tell, there were actually several images taken after the one in question that was supposedly the last. In fact, I obtained an archive of 52 image taken by Phobos 2 and converted them from the file format that the Planetary Data System service uses versus one that's actually normally readable. In this case, I converted them all to PNG. I count 12 images that were taken for 62 minutes after that quote-unquote last image was taken. I'll, of course, have these linked up in the show notes to this episode on the website as a zip archive so that you can view them at your leisure. I'll also, of course, post links to what several people point to this UFO, mothership, or plasma beam weapon, or whatever they want to call it. Now, what's even more interesting is if you scroll through the 52 images quickly, you'll notice that many of them have an artifact. There's a white vertical stripe at the bottom of the image, centered horizontally. It varies in size, but that same artifact is present in 17 out of the 46 images that aren't saturated in that area of the image. The earliest dates to February 21st, 1989, over a month before the craft was lost. So is this an image artifact in every other image but an alien mothership in this one particular quote-unquote last image? Or is it just an artifact overall? One also has to think more about the claim that this vertical line is a UFO mothership that's a mile wide and 15 miles long. On what is that based? For those of you who have been with this podcast from the beginning or have gone back and listened to the archives, think back to episode two, where I explained why you can't know the size distance and speed of a UFO in any real physical units unless you already know one of those items. The application in this case is that even if we were to accept that this were a spacecraft, it would still be impossible to know how large it was unless you assumed its distance. I'm assuming in most cases that the ufologists assumed that it was as far as Phobos was, and that's how they calculated the size. But... That's an assumption. Think of a fly on the lens appearing much larger than an airplane 30,000 feet away. However, all of this logic and reason and searching into the evidence doesn't really matter to most conspiracy people, especially when they have remote viewing to back them up.
1: What happened to the Mars Observer? And they told me the same thing that happened to the Phobos Two, which was a Soviet. Uh, Mars probe that went up and was lost just as it was going into orbit around the planet Mars. So of course I pushed on that and later (coughs) saw the results of their remote viewing and basically what they said was that the Phobos 2 and the Mars Observer as they were going into orbit around Mars, a disk shaped object rose off the surface of Mars, came out to meet this uh, satellite. And I might point out, apparently with no hostile intent. In fact, the analogy that was given to me was this was was like the tugboat coming out to pull in the Queen Mary, okay? But it came out, it scanned the Phobos two with uh, some sort of electromagnetic scanning beam, you know, hey, who are you? It realized that this was nothing that it had anything to do with, so the disk-shaped object turned and flew back to the surface of Mars. And, but in beaming uh, this probe, probing beam to the Phobos 2, it scrambled the onboard computer, threw it all off, it's probably sparking and going, and they lost control. And both the Phobos 2 and the Mars Observer then spiraled into the atmosphere of Mars and probably burned up. That sounds like an incredible story. Right? How, how do we know if that's true? Well, at that point, nobody knew if that was true. But some astounding feedback came because I have a drawing uh, that the remote viewers did, and it shows not a perfectly c- cylindrical or perfectly circular object, but kind of an erratic. I don't know, I'm trying to describe it. Maybe it looks like uh, looks like this. State of Ohio or something. It's a. Uh, it's generally roundish, but it's oblong. Okay. Again, just an incredible story. But how in the world would we ever know? Well, it turns out that the Phobos two was snapping photographs right up until the time they lost control, and uh, in nineteen eighty nine, um, that's when the Phobos two was lost, and then. Several years later, like about 1994 or 5, a cosmonaut, Colonel Marina Popovich, visited the United States, and when she was at a press conference in San Francisco, she held up one of the photographs, uh, last photographs taken from the Phobos two, and lo and behold, here's an object that looks very similar to the object that the remote viewers had sketched. So now we got feedback. You know, now there's something that shows that what they saw may well have been true.
0: So how can you argue with quote unquote evidence like that? And for those of you who don't know, that was Jim Mars, one of the preeminent conspiracy theorists out there today. So in the end, what are we left with? Or with what are we left if we don't want to end a sentence with a preposition? The known facts are that half of the missions to Mars have failed. Phobos 2 was already having mechanical problems, and on March 27th, after its transmitter had been shut down to conserve power while executing a maneuver, regular communication could not be reestablished and the craft was lost. We also know that many images taken by Phobos 2 and sent back to Earth have numerous image artifacts, including one that appeared on over one-third of the images, perfectly aligned with the scan lines that digitized the images and sent them back to Earth. For more background on that, refer to episodes 47 and 48. On the conspiracy side, we know that a Russian cosmonaut presented one of these images that had that artifact, claimed that it was the last image taken by the spacecraft, which it wasn't, and claimed that it was a UFO, and that she had to smuggle it out of Russia. This was then printed in a UFO magazine in 1992. And from what I can tell, it's really with Popovich that this story originated. That's the available evidence. On most conspiracy sites that you'll find, if you do any type of internet searching for this, you'll find this usually in the context of NASA cover-ups, which is impossible since this was a Soviet mission, or Phobos itself being a gigantic spacecraft, which is a favorite uh, hypothesis of Richard Hoagland, or Mars having life or other such conspiracy ideas that they don't want you to know about. But the evidence here needs to stand on its own. So as critical thinkers, we need to ask ourselves, what's the most likely explanation given the evidence available? Is it that in this one case, the line that was an artifact in other images was not an artifact, but it was a plasma weapon or an alien spaceship that destroyed Phobos 2 two days before it lost contact with Earth and sent back at least a dozen other photos? Or... Is the evidence more consistent with it being an image artifact that was trumped up by UFO enthusiasts who played fast and loose with the facts and continue to propagate the conspiracy today? I think you already know what my thoughts are on this subject, but of course, you should always examine the evidence for yourself. I actually have two pieces of new news this week, although they're sort of more of a follow-up to previous things. The first is that I'm a coin collector, and I came across an article last week that's yet more about the Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity and how image calibrations on it are done. A 1909 Lincoln cent was flown to Mars and is used by the MAHLI camera to calibrate its performance, The coin is in a capsule, with some other calibration stuff, but they chose the coin because, often in the field, geologists will use coins next to rocks to give scale in photos. If the rock is larger, they'll photograph a rock hammer next to the object. They chose a 1909 coin because MSL was supposed to have launched in 2009, but budget and technical issues put it back to the 2011 launch. So I thought that this was sort of uh, another neat article, that just talked about more of the image calibration stuff that we've been talking about for about the last five episodes. Now, another bit of new news this episode is yet another update on the Lunar Ziggurat Saga. Mike Barra, the main promoter of it at this time, has been interviewed on at least four other radio programs in the last few weeks about his new book and specifically addressing the Lunar Ziggurat and the, I'll call it, Discussion that he and I have had. On Monday, September 24th, he was on Coast to Coast AM. He named me, by name, that's what naming means, several times. George Norrie, the host, said twice that he would have to have me on. I also called in, and I was put on the air and able to question Mike for about five minutes. I have put the audio of this in the show notes for this episode. I'm also attaching it to the end of this episode before the end music. The audio that I'm attaching is actually seven minutes because Mike bleeds in from responding to my second set of questions with his views on skepticism, and there didn't really seem to be an obvious point to cut it, so I included the whole thing. I also think it's a little bit informative to include his views on skepticism. I am recording this... Um, almost exactly one week after the Coast to Coast episode, and I have not yet received a call from a Coast to Coast producer, but I will be following up on this and will, of course, let you all know if I do make it onto the show. Coast has a nightly listening audience of anywhere from 5 to 15 million people, and it's syndicated on over 500 radio stations in the United States alone, making it the most listened to late-night radio talk show. So this would be fairly good exposure. Moving on to the next segment, I'm actually also skipping Q&A this time, but if you would like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback, I mentioned in episode 51 that, as I was in the middle of recording, David Nabhan, had commented in the show notes for episode 50 on lunatic or lunatic earthquakes, and, since I was recording when he commented, I would talk about his response in this particular episode. For those who don't remember, David was one of the people I used as an example whose statistics and data were fundamentally flawed when showing that earthquakes coincided with lunar syzygy. After going back and forth a bit between Chu, David, and myself— David stopped responding. He stopped responding basically after we really started to dig into what he was actually claiming, and showing that his data and understanding of where the moon was, was flawed. The back and forth lasted just over a day, and that was that. So there's really nothing else to report on this particular issue. And that means that it's time for the puzzler where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. Nancy Leader claims that planet X is 23 times the diameter and 4 times the mass of Jupiter. She also said that its gravity is 50% more than Earth's. We'll assume she means surface gravity and that it is a water world with just a few landmasses, much like, as I describe, Lantia from Stargate Atlantis. Is what she said plausible, based on what we know from basic physics? Congratulations goes to Chu on the SGU message boards for, again, being the first to write in with the correct response, but honorable mentions go to Jan, Warwick, Desert Fox, and Phil Kay. The solution is that no. It is not plausible for several different reasons. First off, Jupiter is 10% the diameter of the Sun, but it's only about 0.1% the mass. If you increased Jupiter's mass by a factor of 4, there is absolutely no way it would be 23 times the diameter. It would just be a little bit bigger because the gases would compress. That is, unless Somehow, you artificially heated it, so the atmospheric gases would be more excited and expanded by a gigantic amount. Also, at four times the mass of Jupiter, you'd still get a gas giant. The generally accepted term brown dwarf is for any object between about 13 and 80 Jupiter masses. Above 80, and you become a star. Nancy's claiming that this is four times mass of Jupiter, so it would still be a gas giant. This is actually basic physics that has been demonstrated and never shown to be wrong in over 400 years. If it were somehow wrong, then many things wouldn't work the way they do, like hot air balloons. Another issue is the 50% more gravity claim. Now let's assume that any surface, quote-unquote surface, of a gas giant expands proportionately with diameter, Although, that's another issue. We know of no way for a planet that could be that large and not mostly be gas, as opposed to rocky with water, she's claiming. Now, an object that's 4 times the mass and 23 times the diameter would have a surface gravity of 4 divided by 23 squared, that of Jupiter. In other words, only 0.76% of Jupiter's surface gravity. Jupiter's surface gravity is roughly 2.4 times Earth's, meaning that Nancy's planet X would only be about 2% Earth's gravity under Nancy's scenario, not 150%. Again, this is basic physics that was figured out 400 years ago. So no, Nancy Leader's planet X is not plausible, nor really possible under any of the basic physics that we've been using for centuries. As Phil Kay put it, disproving leaders' claims is like shooting fish in a barrel. But will any of her followers pay attention? There is no puzzler for this episode. Now the next few episodes will be more photography claims of the Apollo moon hoax, another fake story of Planet X, formation ideas for the moon, and an interview with an astrobiologist, in not necessarily that order. If you have ideas for a puzzler on any of those, please send them in. No announcements this episode other than to say that I'll be continuing the two per month, at least through October. I was just in the last week asked to be on a NASA grant review panel in mid-October, and I'm actually going to see if they'll let me blog about it so long as I leave out all identifying information and people's names. I'll let you know if they mention the Brookings Report in our review criteria, and whether or not a grant should be rejected.
2: Let's go to Stuart in Boulder, Colorado. I don't think he's the one you've been talking about, though. Hey, Stuart, go ahead.
3: Hi, George. Hi, um, Stu. I'm the guy that Mike was talking. Oh, about. you are.
2: Oh. I was going to get you on to, to do your own rebuttal, but uh, if you want a quick question well, or two, to go, to go ahead.
3: Bring up now, and uh, you can call me later. <laughs> All
2: right, I'm, we're going to get your number. But do you have a quick question for Mike before you go?
3: I did. Um, My main question for Mike was, I wanted to know what it would take to falsify his belief in the ziggurat.
4: Um, I would have to see a first-generation print from somebody who had held it since the very early days of Apollo, somebody like Ken Johnston. I would have to have that. I would have to verify its authenticity, scan it, and... There would have to be virtually nothing there but that's not even going to happen because i already have two other images 6613 and 6614 which confirm most of what is seen in the ziggurat image that we've put out before so that's that's what it would take i would have to see something that was truly authentic and you know what i'd like to find out from you is what it would take to falsify your belief that this is a fake and i mean you laid out three very specific criteria all of which I completely destroyed in my analysis on my blog, and people can go to my blog and read on it and read it and decide for themselves. But I basically, you set out three standards of proof, all of which I believe very clearly I met. So, what would it take for you to admit that this thing is probably a legitimate image?
3: Well, so actually, uh, so actually, I did respond to uh, your blog post. On my own blog, but obviously we can't really play uh, blog tag. A
2: blog blog.
3: Left. Um, <laughs> basically, um, I disagree in what you with what you said. I don't think that you, as you put it, uh, destroyed my arguments. And people can go to my blog and see why I say that. Um, but basically, I mean, for example, I and I really don't like to use this word, but I'll use it anyway. I believe or trust other images from other spacecraft. I mean, the one with the ziggurat for you comes from a, uh, I think it's the Call of Duty Zombies Forum. That's really one of the only sources that you have for this, whereas there are so many other images taken by other craft, including non-NASA ones, that have imaged the site at very high resolution, as a caller about 20 minutes ago said, and yet you just dismiss those pretty much because you say, it doesn't have the ziggurat, therefore it's fake. And so I'm curious, actually, you said that you would like to uh, verify an original print's authenticity or authenticity. How would you go about doing that? I mean, why? what would make it to you say that something is authentic as opposed to, say, the Celine images from the Japanese spacecraft that image that region at 10 meter per pixel resolution?
4: Well, first of all, the Selene image is full of artifacts, and you can see that from what I produced, and those artifacts were deliberately induced by the Japanese. Secondly, as I've told you before, I have many, many occasions, maybe a dozen, 15, 18, 20, 25 at this point, where NASA has been deceptive or has overtly lied or altered imagery before. So again, I don't trust their, their source information. What makes it authentic for me is the fact that I know that it's been outside of NASA's control for decades. And this was back in the days when people were able to slip things out the door before they started putting the clamps on this. So again, that's you know I, I would trust what I got from Ken Johnson's information, Ken Johnson's collection, more than I would trust anything posted on any website by NASA, simply because of my life experience of spending the last 15 years dealing with their politics and their B.S. and their false claims about the face on Mars and their false claims about the DNM pyramid on Mars and all the other things that have come out—the the false claims they made about the MOLA instrument, the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter—they've made all kinds of false.
2: You claims. two would be a good debate, there, Michael.
4: Well, uh, you know, again, George, if you want to debate, i i, I really have one question for Stuart. At
2: well, this Stuart point. is uh, now giving his number to Tom's.
4: So. Well, what I'd like to know, what I'd like to know—let's save it
2: in case I have him on. Well,
4: okay. What I'd like to know at this point is: Are you the guy that, under the fake email name, sent me those? email messages to my gmail account
2: and i'll let you ask him that if he ever comes back oh, on all right I
4: lost him okay well so again you know I, I first of all i applaud him for having the guts to come on i i have i have a feeling that deep down somewhere there's a nice guy well but is it is he
2: the guy that's the, that's the
4: other part. well you know again if if you're gonna stoop to that level that's that's just pretty ridiculous and the, the, the truth is look these guys these guys are debunkers. They have an agenda, and the agenda is, is to make sure that people are like me and like you oh, and yeah, like they are the, not taken seriously.
2: They all, e- even those who are, are opposed to what we all do, they have a right to say that. That's what this country is all about. And and I that doesn't bother me. I mean, I'll go toe-to-toe with all of them. You should, too.
4: Well, I will, except that what, what the, the real desire is uh, on the part of people like James Oberg and Phil Plate and, and now I guess we can throw Stuart in there. and Congratulations, Stuart. You've now made it up to their level. It, their objective is to get you to spend all of your energy defending yourself against attack after attack after attack rather than looking for new information, rather than putting new stuff out. So, again, yeah, I only respond occasionally. To- and I only respond, George, in this case, I responded – to him because of his very strong implication that either Richard or I had fabricated this image. He said he wouldn't put it past us that we had done this. Well, you know, I'd like to hear from him at some point whether he's now prepared to put it past him past us for doing something like that. Because the truth is we don't have to and I would encourage everybody to go to the image I told I including the guy from Colorado or the other guy that called in, Bob or whatever his name was, go look at that image. Go look at AS11, 38, and you don't have to believe in the ziggurat at all. Look at the rest of that picture. There's artificial buildings, structures, mechanisms, vehicles all over that image, and they are completely obvious to anybody who's ever even put together a model car or a model flying saucer.
2: Well, the greatest part of this show, Michael, is everybody has a right to make up their own minds. And that's what's so good.
0: That wraps up this, the 52nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use, one, the feedback form on the website. Two, send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net. Three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, I think four, yeah, four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or some other portal that it might happen to be linked up to. If you did like it also, please tell friends and family and two random people that you don't actually know.